We turn now in our Bibles to Judges chapter 18. Uh, We are continuing our series through the book of Judges, and this is the second half of the story that we began last week with the uh, man Micah, who set up a shrine in his household. And now we have an introduction to some new characters, the tribe of Dan in particular. But before we turn and read from God's word, let us pray and ask God's blessing upon us as we hear his preaching. Father, we do ask as we sang in the song that you would speak to us and that you would feed us with your heavenly words, that you would strengthen our souls in our walk of godliness, that we would show forth to this world that we belong to the Lord and King of heaven. Father, I pray for our hearts that they are in continual need of conviction of our sin. And where a sin is hiding in us, would you reveal that now in our hearts? And would you not just drive us to despair, but would you drive us to the cross where we can find forgiveness and mercy? And Lord, we pray that we would receive these words with reverence and the authority that they derive from you, that come from you, and that you would protect us from error and that my words would be pleasing in your sight. Guide and lead us now, we pray, in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, turn with me now to Judges chapter 18. It's a rather long chapter, so, uh, but let's read here from the word of the Lord from Judges 18. In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtaol, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim and to the house of Micah and lodged there. When they were at the house, by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside to him and said, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish, And saw the people who were there, how they lived in security, and after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking in nothing that is in the earth, and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtaol, and their brothers said to them, What do you report? And they said, said, Arise, let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come, up, um, come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtael and went up to an, and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. On this account, this, that place is called Mahanadan. To this day, behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim, 
And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five brothers who had gone out to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore, consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone out to scout the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to him, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be a priest to the tribe and clan of Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, and they shouted to, to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. And the people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, He turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made, and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was was no deliverer because it was far away from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth-Rehob, And then they rebuilt the city and lived in it. And they named the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, a son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Thus ends the reading of the word of the Lord to us. May he bless it to our hearts. Well, this text to us is an interesting one, a unique story that we find here in Judges. And I think it's helpful to reflect on something in our English language that happens in other languages too to help us start to begin to put together what is happening here. I wonder if you have heard of a palindrome. Maybe you have seen these before, you've used them before. When I was in grade school, I remember learning about palindromes. 
If your memory is a bit fuzzy, a palindrome is a word that can be read forwards and backwards the same way. One of the most famous palindromes is the word race car, R-A-C-E-C-A-R. You can read it forwards and backwards. And some of you kids are going to be writing this down, trying to figure this out, and maybe some of you adults have already lost you. But let's see if I can get you back in for the remainder of this sermon. But palindromes are a fun thing, and sometimes there's whole phrases and sentences that people construct that can be read forwards and backwards. While this is not unlike what the Old Testament writers would do as they constructed their stories, they would construct them in the way that you would work your way through from beginning to end, and then you would have a middle point, and then you'd come right back through all the details matching the beginning, kind of like a palindrome. And this story of Judges, Judges 17 and 8, is connected to an earlier part in the story, reading it forwards and backwards. Now, there's something unique that the Israelites would do, the Hebrews would do when they'd write these. They would usually change some details a little bit so that it would bring emphasis or change to the story. They would like to focus on certain things at the central part of the story. In fact, the whole book of Judges is like a palindrome itself, beginning and ending in the same place with something in the middle, the story of Gideon, the famous judge. But what's fascinating about this book of Judges is that it is a little bit different from a palindrome, is that instead of ending up where you started, every place where you go when you follow along as you go down that story gets worse and worse and badder That's not really a great word, but worse and worse in the whole circumstance. The beginning of Judges starts with what Kenneth Way, a scholar, shows is Israel fighting against foreign enemies. Chapter 1 through the first part of chapter 2, Israel is now entering in after Joshua to conquer the land of Israel. But at the very end of the story of the book of Judges, no longer is Israel fighting enemies on the outside. Chapters 19, 20, and 21, the end of it is Israel fighting against their own brothers, fighting against each other. Well, if we move one step inside on that palindrome, we see that there's another thing that happens. There's not just fighting outside enemies, but they are now given over to idolatrous ways. In the beginning of Judges, chapter 2 through the first part of chapter 3, Israel is now given to idolatry, but God says he's going to test them with the nations he's going to leave them, whether they are going to follow the Lord. And now we see the result of this, the matching pair, if you will, at the end of Judges in 17 and 18. Has Israel learned from the nations who oppress them? And the answer that chapters 17 and 18 give to us is a resounding no. It's an inverted situation. Israel is now no longer just adopting gods from the outside of the nations around them. They are now fashioning and making their own gods, making their own image of the one true God himself. It is the downward focusing spiral showing this awful state of Israel Summarized in the statement, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and there was no king in Israel. It is a story of spiritual fragmentation, as we see in chapters 17 and 18, and as we will see in the coming weeks, relational fragmentation. 
It is corruption to its highest form in Israel. It's not just that there are threats outside. There is threats inside of Israel themselves. They are a corrupt people, and this story proves that. And we see here that the fruits of spiritual fragmentation with our relationship with the Lord will then yield into this way of relational fragmentation with the brothers and sisters that are around us. The church, as we see in Israel, who it was, fighting against each other, killing each other, committing the most atrocious acts. It is the relational fragmentation that happens when we turn away from the Lord. It's why the psalmist in Psalm 51, David cries out, Against you only and you alone have I sinned. Because he realizes that his sin first and foremost began with his relationship with the Lord. He had spiritual fragmentation and then it bled out into his relationships around him. And we see here something that is interesting as your title was given to us. The adulterous fragmentation, the idolatry of adultery. Spiritual adultery that provides the justification for us to do all kinds of atrocious acts, all kinds of evil with those around us. So this palindrome, this structure, this chiasm as sometimes scholars refer to it, helps us see the overall picture of what's happening here. A nation who is spiritually fragmenting, flying off the ways And so let's turn now and hear what is happening in this story for us this morning. The text begins, there was no king in Israel. There was no king. And it shows us what happens when the people of God have no king. No one ruling over them and guiding them in the worship. This is what the king was supposed to do. In particular, if you read the story of Judges, Judge the king, or in the book of Kings, not judges, in the book of First and Second Kings, kings are evaluated on what they do with the idols around them. Do they let them persist? Do they add more? Or do they destroy them and get rid of them? And now we hear that there is nobody getting rid of the idols here, and it is a clear indictment that there is no king to care for them. But then we hear of this people of Dan, this tribe, and we will learn of their significance at the very end of the story. Why, why focus on this tribe? But we learn that they're looking for an inheritance. They're trying to find their place of land. Now, if we, had, if we recall back to chapter 1, which I'm sure it's been several months and we've forgotten this on some level, but in back in chapter 1, there is an unsuccessful attempt by the Israelites by the end of chapter 1 to conquer the land. What started off well was getting worse and worse, and this evaluation of the tribe of Dan is given in verse 34. The Amorites, a foreign nation who they were supposed to conquer, pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they, that's the Amorites, did not allow them to come down to the plain. Dan failed to take possession of the inheritance that was allotted to them. They were driven out. They were here pictured as the weakest tribe of all the tribes. Dan is considered one of the smallest tribes in Israel. And we'll see that pictured for us in this passage. Dan failed. Dan failed to take possession of their their inheritance and were instead overpowered by their enemies. But why did they fail? And what was the fallout from this? That's what this passage is going to instruct us. 
So the tribe of Dan sends spies out into Israel to find themselves an inheritance. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you will know that this sounds similar to when Israel was going to enter in the promised land. They sent spies to find out if it was a good land and where they should go. Those spies came back and gave a report. But there are some interesting parallels here that we're going to see. The results are far more disastrous than what happened for the Israelites. If you remember the spies, when they went into Canaan, they went into a particular person's house, Rahab. And in the book of Exodus, or sorry, that the book of Exodus, that lets us know that Rahab was a harlot, a prostitute. And here our story, we see these men have gone out into the land of Canaan, and now they have entered a house. But it is the house of Micah. And where this Levite priest who has forsaken his duties and taken responsibilities to him that are not his and serving false gods is doing his acts. And where we saw with Rahab who confesses the Lord and seeks to follow him and asks the people of Israel to save and preserve her, now these men are going in to commit spiritual prostitution with the man Micah, and his Levite priest. They ask, unlike Rahab, for the Israelites to deliver them because she trusts in their Lord. They ask this idolatrous priest, will they be delivered? How will it fare for us? Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. They are a complete inversion of the woman, Rahab, who trusted in the Lord. These men are godless and faithless. And they recognize the priest. It's possible they knew his dialect or his accent. We saw that circumstance in a few chapters earlier where the different accents were a cause for fighting against each other. But all they are concerned about in this situation is their own welfare. How is it going to turn out for us? Find out from God, however you approach him, or the gods around them. Then we learn after their visit to Micah's house of gods, as it's called, or a shrine as our our text interprets it, they travel to the farthest reaches of Israel, as far north as you can go in Israel as possible to an unsuspecting land. And the emphasis here is on Laish, is on its weakness, its vulnerability, and its lack of readiness for war. And we are caught off guard. What is going to happen to these people and these 600 men who are armed for war? So they find this land, they come back and tell their people and this army to get back to point out the good land they found, and now we've learned that the tribe of Dan is not only weak, but they're lazy. They were driven back by the Ammonites, but their own spies say, basically, get off your lazy rear ends and come go fight. This is a weak, lazy people who are spiritually idolatrous in every way. So they finally do. They muster the strength. They get up and they go, and they stop on their way at the supposedly hospitable Micah. They return to the house of gods. Now, if you thought from last week that Micah was an opportunist, stealing from his mom, getting that money back, and buying off a priest and building all, or in fashioning all kinds of idol, idols, 
You need to see what the tribe of Dan does. Every person in this story is an opportunist. The tribe of Dan, the Levite, and Micah himself. And on their way, before they go to attack Laish, the spies give a hint of what's to come. They say to their brothers, the 600 men, you know what to do when we stop at Micah's home. There's idols in there. Now we would expect, and we would think the proper thing to do here is to go in and destroy them, to say we are in the land of Israel. But as we see, that's not at all what is going to happen. It only gets darker. They surround the priest's home, stand at the gate, the only way out, and the spies go in and they rob him. And when the Levite realizes what's happening, he says, what are you doing? Now the ever opportunists that the Danites are is they say, well, you come be a priest to us. Isn't it better to be a priest to a whole tribe than just to one man? If you think you're wealthy now, think of how much more wealthy hundreds, thousands of men can make you. And so we see the heart of Micah, we see the heart of the Levite, and we see the heart of the tribe of Dan always motivated by what they can get in this life, money. Micah, who thought everything was going to go well for him, the whole story flips on its head. At the end of chapter 17, Micah says, now I know that because I have a priest and all these paraphernalia of idolatry things, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite priest. And now it all flips on its head. And the man who was motivated to serve because of money is now motivated again to serve even more people with his idolatrous ways. The Levite can be bought, a man given over to the lusts of his hearts. Now Micah gets winds of this. He tries to stop them, and he runs out after them and says, what are you doing? Why are you taking away my things? But he's just one man against a whole army. And so he goes his own way, back to his house, realizing he has nothing he can do to these men. Now, the tribe of Dan goes all the way back north, back to the little city of Laish that we heard about. And we hear the complete description we heard before repeated for us, utterly helpless. And what this is not supposed to instruct us in is is necessarily the innocence of this tribe, but how pathetic the tribe of Dan is. How little, how utterly lacking they are in trust of the Lord. The Lord said, I will be the one who goes in and fights for you. You can come up against any army, any people, and I will destroy them. If anything we've learned from the book of Judges up to this point is that there is nothing will stand against the Lord when he goes against the enemies of Israel. And Samson, who is one of their own judges, should be a picture to them of that. Uh, One man single-handedly destroys thousands and thousands of Philistines. But Dan is utterly weak, trusting in only themselves, and the only people they're willing to attack is somebody who is totally defenseless. There's no trust in the Lord, only in themselves. They're a tribe who's hollowed out, weak, powerless, thieving, and self-seeking, Micah himself is a man who's hollowed out by idolatry. He thinks his life consists in his idols. Listen to what he says. What have I left? I am empty without my idols. I have nothing. 
My life is of no point without these idols. And these circumstances show what happens when we turn to idolatry. It's the spiritual fragmentation that results. We actually become weaker and weaker in our lives. And there are two summaries at the end of this passage that prove this point. The end of chapter 18, after the, after the Danites attack Laish and take it over, there's two things that the text tells us that are unique and interesting. First, we learn that this priest has a name, Jonathan, and he is a direct descendant of Moses. In fact, the text implies that he's Moses' grandson. In just two generations, the grandson of Moses, the most powerful, important figure in Old Testament history, aside from Abraham, his grandson is now the one who is leading the people of Israel astray into gross idolatry. And this Levite served a false shrine for generations. The people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. The captivity of the land that's referred to here is much later in the life of Israel when the Assyrians come down and capture them in about 700 A.D., hundreds if not hundreds of years later. But there is a second note that's given to us about the tribe of Dan. So they, the tribe of Dan, set up Micah's carved image that he had made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. The tribe of Dan shows up much later in the history of Israel when they have all of their kings. And there is a time of a king named Jeroboam, if you read the book of First and Second Kings, who sets up his false shrine in northern Israel the whole time that the tabernacle was dwelling down south, where David had set it up, moved it from Shiloh down to Jerusalem. And it is this rivalry that is begun here in the book of Judges that continues for generations and generations in the land of Israel. And what the author of Judges is showing us is that the evil that the Danites commit persists and only gets worse and is actually the cause of the civil war that happens inside of Israel, focused on Jeroboam. This shows us the enduring nature of false religion and idolatry. That once it takes root, the only way that God would get rid of it was through exile. The only way that he would get rid of idolatry in the land ultimately was his own work purging the land itself, taking the people away. So what do we need to learn? What do you and I need to learn today about this scene, this disaster that's happening? First, we learn that idolatry is spiritual fragmentation, as I have said. It's like nuclear fallout, if you know anything about nuclear waste. That if you 
get even near that object, there is nuclear waste that is radiating out that you can't see. And at first, it may not seem like anything has happened. Then imperceptibly, it starts ripping you apart, destroying your body from the inside out as all of the atoms of your body start falling apart. And suddenly you realize you have nothing left. That is what idolatry is doing in Israel and what it does in our own hearts. The Bible compares idolatry to an empty vessel. It's no wonder that here Micah proclaims, what have I left? I'm empty. Because that is what Scripture diagnoses this whole scene as, vanity and emptiness. Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The very thing that we think is going to give us life is taking it away. It destroys us, as we see with the people of Israel. And it's why idolatry is pictured as adultery in this passage. Because it's deceptive and it makes us think we're getting one thing when in reality we're getting another. But secondly, we see the long-lasting effects of idolatry. This rival religion persisted for generations. No king was able to fully eradicate it. No mere human king could displace the northern kingdoms of Israel and their idolatry. And the only way that God could displace it was through his own act of judgment on the northern kingdom. And idolatry doesn't just affect ourselves, it affects everyone around us. Those who are around us now and those who will come after us in our lives. So what do we need? What do you and I need? What did Israelites need? Well, they obviously, as the text tells us, they needed a king. And not just any king, since every human king, mere human king at that point and onward, would fail to ultimately root out idolatry from the whole land. They did have good kings from time to time. Read First and Second Kings, you will hear of them. David, Solomon, Asa, Josiah, Hezekiah, they're evaluated as those who destroyed the idols and the Asherim and all these different forms of worship in the land, but they were not ultimately successful. As one pastor put it, who will give them the promised land free of idols? The people of Israel thought they would finally do this and find their life through their own self-seeking. They thought idolatry was the pathway of life and gaining their inheritance. Will this go well for us? The tribe of Dan asks to the idolatrous priest. But it is Jesus Christ, the one king, who can give us what is satisfying, truly satisfying for our souls. He's the living water who comes down from heaven. And he is the heavenly rest. He is the inheritance that the people of Israel were ultimately to look for. God himself who would satisfy them. And that they would trust him as the one who would save them from all of their idolatrous ways and trust him as the one true king, the one God-man who would give them the kingdom freely. 
That is what they are called to do. And that is what you and I are called to do because Jesus Christ accomplishes this ultimately in himself. He is the one who provides the inheritance for his people. But he doesn't do this with our help. He does this alone by himself and he will give to us an inheritance land that is free of idolatry for eternity by his own work, by his own grace. And so we can come to him and confess and say, Lord, we're idolatrous people, just like Dan, the tribe of Dan, just like Micah, just like the Levites. But we need you to save us. And the good news today for you, Christian, is that you can trust in this Savior that he will bring you home to the inheritance that you need. And he will do this perfectly in your life. So forsake your idols and look to the one true King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do confess the ways that we are idolatrous, that we look to the things of this life to fill us with the life that we think we want to have. But Lord, we do need your King, the Lord Jesus, to reign and rule in our hearts and to root out the idolatry that is in us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work in us in this time and in the weeks to come, in the days to come, to slowly destroy the idolatry that remains in us and that we would rest alone in the work of Christ who does this and that we would seek to follow him and worship the one true living God alone who would fill us with his eternal life, the living water. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen.